Today I'm chatting with Sean about where his privacy career has gone. Once Sean's interests in privacy were confirmed, he decided to go out and start his own firm. And uh, with that, it's a pleasure to welcome Sean Galvin to the podcast. He actually has his own law firm. He's the founder of Galvin Privacy and AI Law. So thank you so much for joining the podcast, Sean. Thanks, Don. All right, let's get into it. So you grew up in Alaska in Anchorage. Uh, I guess talk about growing up in Alaska, in, uh, in Alaska and you know what did you want to be as a kid? Yeah, um, as a kid, I went between wanting to be an astronaut and wanting to be a major league baseball player. Um, but growing up in Alaska, like the, the baseball season is like only about three months compared to in the lower 48 where the baseball season could be like all year round. So as soon as, um, as soon as I went and played baseball with some kids from the lower 48 who practiced year round, that dream was pretty shattered like immediately. <laughs> and so I, I gave up on that. And, um, and yeah, I, I think, I think in high school, I wanted to be a physicist. So nice. I, I decided to go, um, eventually go to school to be an engineer or a physicist, um, and then changed paths. But yeah. Interesting. So, uh, before we get there, talk a little about couple of your high school jobs you did some uh, music gigs you were a bellman at uh, the Sheridan in Alaska talk about that yeah um yeah my first like I guess official job was as a bellman at a at a hotel up in Alaska doing baggage handling for uh, tourists and then on the side just here or there would I played bluegrass music and um, swing music jazz music upright bass um with my friends and so we would do like fancy events or weddings or things uh here and there and earn money that way interesting so then uh you went to the the lower 48 as as you call it for uh for yes. grad, the university of portland talk about um talk about that and uh your your college experience yeah so uh i decided to go outside we call it going outside we're going to lower 48 um for school and went uh went to the university of portland and sort of bounced around between like engineering and physics for the first couple of years and decided to switch gears to math and economics in the last uh, last couple of years of my my time there and I, I think my senior year i like looked at my credits and realized if i just did a really, really tough final semester that I could get a dual degree instead of just a double major. And so I took like 23 credits my last semester and um, graduated with a, a BS in mathematics and a, a BA in economics. Um, but that was really, for me, it was, um, it's always been preferable. This will be sort of a theme is that I kind of go with the flow and like follow my interests like as they, I don't try to prejudge like where I should end up. I just follow whatever is the most captivating to me, like in that year, in that moment. And that so far has, has led me to a very um, 
so far at least intellectually fulfilling career is just always following what is most interesting to me at the time and in college that was math and economics interesting and you know being that you worked uh with math and data and has that kind of helped you being on the other end now and in, in privacy and ai yeah i definitely think among lawyers like there's there's always that joke and sometimes people say it as a joke sometimes it's like unironic but they say like i went to law school to avoid doing math um and many lawyers seem to think that math is like antithetical to what lawyers do and we deal with words and sentences and precedent but i think more and more as our world becomes data driven digital driven um lawyers need to catch up and being able to speak the language of mathematics speak the language of programming i think enables um like a level of collaboration with the business partners that you have to deal with when you're talking about data privacy and and data governance um that i think is very very needed right now like as we start to talk about ai governance and data privacy falling so far behind the technology um so that that for me is is really the mission behind my law firm wow that's great and yeah i definitely uh agree with you as a as a data analytics uh, major myself so uh very cool so then get into you were a campaign manager for pete uh pete lafrance get into get into that yeah uh so in college i decided to take a semester at home and stayed in in anchorage to run the state house campaign for um a family friend who was running for for um state house outside of anchorage because uh, i was interested in politics at the time and was thinking about um law school and policy as a, as a future route if i were to not do an academic um academic career and, and go to like so i was trying to decide between like a doing like a phd program or doing something more on the law and policy side and getting into state politics was sort of like a, a route towards that and that really involved a lot of <laughs> data analytics a lot of like um strategizing around what's the most efficient like way of spending the candidates time to knock on the doors of the voters that are most likely to be persuaded by an in-person conversation um and so a lot of that is like that was sort of my first foray into, into oh wow like we have a lot of data on voters that is used by political campaigns to you know target their advertising target their um volunteer door knocking like and this was pre Cambridge Analytica scandal and all that stuff um so like that that level of targeting wasn't even like contemplated yet, but just the sheer amount of data that the political parties have on individuals to me was like a an eye opening experience, um, and that was you know I only know you know learned about that through running a campaign myself. Well, yeah, great insight, and um, 
So at that point in time, I guess what you were already thinking of going to law school or how did that come to be? Yeah, I think I'd been thinking about going to law school. I, my, my dad's a lawyer. Um, he had worked for the state government for most of his career. Um, and so I always, always had sort of a background and people had always told me since I'm so argumentative, like you should go to law school. Um, which I thought was sort of tongue in cheek, but turned out to be kind of true that it was a natural fit. Um, mm -hmm. But I was I was studying for the LSAT at the time when I was um, when I was running that campaign. I think I think the campaign was you know it ended like November sixth or something, and I took the LSAT like two weeks later. Wow. Okay. And um, so then you ended up going to law school all the way. On the other side of the country, uh, New York at NYU. So get into, I guess, that decision and uh, your experience there at NYU. Um, so the decision, like NYU was, was among my like reach schools, I think. Like I had, there was, um, for me, law school, I was, I wasn't planning on going to like a, a elite top law school because like my college grades, because I was working so much like my college grades weren't excellent. Um, and then I took the LSAT and I was traveling abroad in like Thailand and I had all these emails in my inbox when I logged in. And it was from all the, like from Columbia, from like NYU, from um, UTI, from all these schools that were going to be reach schools saying apply for free. And I was like, what's all this about? And I checked my spam filter and my LSAT score was in there. Wow. And I realized oh, I did way better than I expected on the test because I think math prepares you for um, for the LSAT in a way that that people don't really appreciate is like the logic game is just as, right. um, it's just natural. So I, I hadn't even really studied that much. I'd taken a couple of practice tests and then took the, took the LSAT and I did way better than I expected. So I was like, okay, that opens up a whole new realm of possibilities so i applied to to um more of the more schools than i you know on the east coast that i would have not really considered otherwise and got into nyu and was just like uh this will be an adventure the you know law capital of of the u.s at least like i couldn't pass it up and um yeah so i was the alaskan in the big city um <laughs> For, for those three years at, at NYU in Greenwich Village and um, it was a bit of a culture shock. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so talk about that. Uh, your first job there, I think you worked at the New York State Department and you're working with emerging financial products and uh, talk about that first job. Yeah, my first summer job was at the Department of Financial Services, uh, New York State Department of Financial Services. And um we that they were like the main regulator for like insurance companies uh operating in, in the uh new york area and my role as an intern i think was mostly um researching some of the new um financial products that were coming out of the market i think it was a lot of like the crowdsourced type of um loans like things that were these like online marketplaces that were propping up where you could um just match with a with a lender that could just be a, a another individual 
and they're trying to figure out how to how they should regulate this. Um, so it was a lot of like research around sort of emerging tech trends in like financial services, and I found that really fascinating. Um, like from a regulatory from a regulator standpoint, with like um, you know DFS is one of the biggest financial regulators in the country, and being able to work with those attorneys to um, really understand the, the nuts and bolts of like when things come into the market, how does a, the regulator respond to that? And the answer is they have some interns from law schools go and, and like write memos on the, and then they think about it and they all look at, you know, different angles and start coming up with drafts of, um, of regulations for these new, new types of products. Um, and yeah, it was an interesting sort of how the sausage gets made kind of moment. Interesting. And, you know, does that, how the sausage gets made and looking at emerging tech, I mean, does that still stay with you today? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, there's that sort of a common theme. It's like, I was always attracted to like emerging tech and like, you know, how to, the intersection of new types of technology that pushed sort of existing laws and you have to adapt to existing laws to you know new economic uh, realities that are caused by these new types of technology that unlock different markets that didn't exist before right yeah fascinating and then um so get into the next summer you uh went to goodwin and uh get into that experience as a summer associate um yeah i mean i i probably just did pretty typical new york like big law summer associate um experience of just getting wined and dined and a lot of like very fun events and things like it's it's kind of a strange it's a strange process um the like big law recruiting process when you're um when you're um you know trying to get uh when they're trying to headhunt you know people from top schools they roll out the red carpet and treat you like you're a client basically. And you get very um, favorable treatment and they don't really ask much of you in terms of workload. And then everyone gets a job offer at the end. It's kind of like a, an interesting, because uh, they're all, all the big firms are competing for very few attorneys who are graduating from the top schools. And so, so the, um, it, it the internship is very different than if you're when you're at a state agency um, because you're really just there to be wooed rather than there to like work. I don't know. That, that at least seems to be the attitude of many of the other uh, summer associates there. Yeah. And uh, there's still a couple of things that I want to cover before we get to this, but we'll just jump ahead a little bit. You ended up working at Goodwin after you graduated. And then uh, I think I've heard from you, you had a little bit of a different experience than, uh, than having the red carpet rolled out. It was really oh, yeah. a lot of work then. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone, mm -hmm. everyone experiences sort of the um, whiplash of going from being a summer associate to then your first year associate. And it's like, you've got a billable hour target and you've got partners you got to keep happy. You got, you know, um, work that gets dumped on you. I didn't actually have that. I had a great time at Goodwin actually for many of my, my years there. Like um, 
I was, let's see, I must have been like 24, 25 or something when I started working there as a full-time associate. And I got to work on some very interesting cases like from the outset with like uh, antitrust cases involving like the biggest banks in the world and like um, complex litigation at the highest like um, you know stakes these are multi-billion dollar cases and it's it was very interesting being able to work on that kind of thing like as a you know junior lawyer um but i think that there ever most associates and i don't want to speak for everyone my my experience was that over time you start to get tunnel vision where it's like all that matters is the work and billing your hours and making your um you know, making your partners happy, the, the partners you're working for and the clients. And you start to lose a bit of your identity outside of work. And like you're, every time you're doing something that's not billable, it feels painful. Like it feels like you're wasting that hour. It's like, that's an hour I could, I'm going to have to make up later. Mm -hmm. And over time, for me at least, that just sapped my soul where I, I felt like I could not get much enjoyment out of um, my life because it was like, if I'm not billing, then I'm not, you know, then I'm going to have to make that up later. And it was, it became clear to me at least that this was not um, a way of working that was going to make me happy in the long term. And I needed to figure out uh, a different path forward. Um I don't know. I think some, I think it could be considered burnout. Like it, it was like a, a form of burnout where it's like that, that tunnel vision concept and you start to just lose your um, passion for it. But I think, I think there really is a way, a, not another way to deliver legal services that isn't, so tied to tracking your your every six minutes like i think that that is going we can talk about that more when you talk about you know what i'm working on now but i do think that that is a a um it's a business model that does harm on both sides of the of the equation both the attorneys and the clients oh yeah and uh we're excited to get into that later on in the podcast here. So yeah. um, before we get there, talk a little about, I think this was either right around when you graduated law school or when you started at Goodwin, you worked uh, actually for your mom. She was running for Congress. Uh, you worked as the campaign manager for her. So talk about that. Yeah. So I, I took um, some time between passing the bar or taking it to the, the New York bar exam and, starting out at, at Goodwin. Um, my mom was running for Congress back home in, in Anchorage. And because of my past, you know, working, running um, 
Pete LaFrance's campaign for state house. I had some experience running political campaigns and still some interest there. So I decided to, um, you know, delay my start at Goodwin until after the election and go and, and help out my mom's campaign. And um, we were running against Don Young, uh, the institution in and of himself, who had been the congressman for Alaska for over 40 years. And um, it was a very um, sort of David and Goliath kind of story. And it was very fun to, to be a part of. Um, she lost ultimately, <laughs> but um, I, I like to think that it paved the way for some changes in Alaska because a couple of years later, she ran again and lost again. But after that, a Democrat ended up winning the statewide um, U.S. House seat um, just a couple of years after that. So now Mary Paltola is the congressman for congresswoman for um, for Alaska, and um, is the first Democrat to hold that seat in a very 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 long time. Interesting and. Uh... Does the apple fall fall uh, far from the tree? There, are you also interested in, in going into politics at some point? Oh no, I I enjoy, um, I enjoy the game of it. Like I enjoyed running, like running campaigns and like supporting people who are running. I can't imagine myself ever running for. I think it's a terrible job. I, I um, I would not want it, and I don't. I wouldn't want it for um many reasons but um no i i don't intend to ever run for office myself mm -hmm. now getting to uh you had one stop between goodwin and your your uh current uh firm so so talk about that you worked at uh cochlear and i think was that your first experience working in privacy law that was the first time that i work directly in privacy law. Yeah, I think I had mostly been doing litigation and then I'd switched to like antitrust um, merger control work at Goodwin for the last six months of my time there. Um, and I was, you know, feeling burnt out like we talked about and looking for in-house positions and um, uh, friend of mine was working in house at Cochlear and they were hiring for um, a new role for there to support their um, telemedicine platform that they were rolling out um, for their, um, so Cochlear manufactures hearing implants and they rolled out a specialized um, uh, software that programs that, programs those, those hearing implants. And then in order to enable remote um, audiology visits, they have to then create their own telemedicine platform to allow physicians to connect with patients in order to actually hook into their proprietary software. Um, and so they were trying to roll this out and sell it to, they're, they're, they're trying to sell it to um, different uh, hospital systems, small healthcare practices, a bunch of different so it's like more of a B2B SaaS business model um, that's very different from their like traditional hardware manufacturer role. And so they were looking to hire legal counsel to support that effort. Um, so I was, my title was legal counsel for technology and operations. Um, and I was effectively like product counsel for their SaaS products. 
Wow. And, uh, you know, were you interested before that in, in privacy or is that really the first time that you, you, you worked with it and you came to appreciate, uh, you know, what, that, that, that new field? I had been interested in privacy. I hadn't, I had always thought that I was going to be a litigator. And so like I had done some like trade secrets litigation, um, that involved uh, there were and like some consumer protection litigation that was sort of was close to privacy type of work but um the regulatory side of things had not been something that was part of my practice until this but then i started to really dig into like to the intersection of um i have to be careful what i i um, I think that many companies in regulated spaces in the U.S. right now are struggling with the question of how do we shift our business model to be sort of a digital ready company. And they've got all this data and a lot of it is personal data. And in the U.S., it's sort of sector by sector Um privacy regulation. And so if you're in healthcare or you're in finance and you're um, thinking about how, how do I leverage this generative AI stuff? How do I implement a RAG system that can pull things from my data and I can talk to my data? That's what a lot of executives want. Mm-hmm. Um, there is going to be an increasing risk from a privacy and you know that type of regulatory risk is going to become more and more salient as they start to leverage this data in in new ways you know because of the possibilities that these new technologies uh, deliver and i think that positioning my practice for that intersection of these like um these new AI models interacting with um, regulated data effectively is a very, very valuable service that both provides better protection for consumers and provides more uh, risk management for enterprises that are starting to play with, you know, you know, everyone's trying to have a digital transformation within their company mm-hmm. and the the legal components to that are so complex and there's not enough lawyers doing that type of work. Um, and so I'm, yeah, anyway, I, I realized in doing this for Cochlear that this is really uh, an area that many, many companies are going to need help with. And uh, I have had a sort of a fear that, especially for smaller startups that are scale-ups that are trying to move fast and break things, that the existing way of delivering legal counsel at a billable rate, um, given the scarcity of the, of the talent in this space, is going to make those types of, um, that type of legal service unaffordable for many 
startups that are doing, you know, have a lot of pressure from their investors, a lot of pressure from the outside to move quickly. And that's how we end up with, with um, some serious harms that can be, you know, can get out of control fairly quickly. And so I'm starting my own practice to, to try to address that need in the market. Wow. And, you know, is there something special you think about specifically data management, AI, privacy that is sort of uh, ready for some disruption in the traditional law firm models? There's something special about, you know, our field of, of privacy law. Um, that's a good question. I think, I think, yes, I think that there's not any one thing. It's sort of a convergence of a number of different things. One is the close tie between the techno technological implementation of you know rules and policies within an organization and the just regular strict regulatory advice like i think just providing a company with a memo that says here's the here are all the things that you need to think about is not very valuable but that's traditionally sort of oftentimes what law firms deliver and so what we're trying to do is see if um, if you disconnect the billable hour incentive from the law firm model and try to partner closely with technologists, you know, I'm bringing in folks to the to the firm who are um, you know very facile on the software development side. Can you deliver sort of a ongoing regulatory implementation or you know, regulatory um, um, consulting service that is legal in nature um, in a different, you know, a new type of way that isn't just like a, a billable hour model where you're delivering work product on some kind of, um, you know, um, Microsoft Word-based um, uh, system. Interesting. And then what is that, you know, what is the new way that uh, you envision? I think that it, it involves a lot more getting into the weeds of what the your client is doing from a compliance standpoint and actually managing a lot of that for them. So what we're, what I'm trying to do is get into you know, target companies that are standing up their own compliance programs, privacy programs, um, fresh, you know, so just, they're just starting out and trying to offer them privacy, legal services and compliance services on an ongoing basis oh. as a subscription service, where as they scale, we sort of scale with them by providing them with their uh their privacy program sort of and and um and regulatory compliance needs sort of as, on an ongoing basis updating their terms of service updating their privacy policies as as sort of things evolve because we're seeing constant changes in state law privacy constant changes in uh global privacy laws and trying to keep up to date with with that, it, keeping up to date with that is a very expensive pro prospect if you're going out to law firms and asking them for 
ad hoc, you know, one-off legal advice that's billed by the hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that really makes much sense because, you know, if you ask a um, a law firm to do a fifty-state survey of you know U.S. privacy laws, they already have that on the shelf somewhere, mm-hmm. in theory. But unless you um, can have the bargaining power to negotiate with them to provide it at a reasonable rate, like they're going to try to bill you by the hour to have an associate go and do that um, because that's the way that their business model set up is to bill by the hour. And what we're trying to do is be more of a direct partner with our clients on an ongoing basis and provide them with, with value sort of uh, month by month. And if they feel like, you know, if we feel like we're getting too much work dumped on us, we can renegotiate the subscription fee for the next month or the, you know, the next six months. If they feel like they're not getting enough value, they can come and try to negotiate it down. Um, and I think that that model is a more, um, you see that in many other industries that that subscription model is a much more flexible arrangement that allows for that sort of um, two-sided value calculation yeah that's fascinating and then you know get into as far as just making a, a bold move uh, in your careers you know you had you worked in, in big law for some time very traditional kind of path and uh you know now you're out on your own and trying to totally disrupt the, the billable hour and i guess get into that as far as like what gave you the the courage to to do that and um and how you decide to go about you know making a a change that's a little bit bold i think for me um the billable out like i've told, talked a bit about that right the, the experience that i had with it and so for me it is a bit of a personal crusade <laughs> that like i i just feel very very strongly that that there is a better way to do things and I intend to try to you know, prove that. And maybe it says something about my personality that that is something I feel so strongly about that I actually want, need to go out and do it myself. But um, I also think that the timing right now, like the speed at which the technology has been advancing in terms of generative AI and, and other forms of AI that have um really exploded under the scene in the last couple like several years law firms are not really set up to adapt to new technological changes i think the way that they are run as partnerships or the way that they're um the way that they're regulated and sort of forced to run this partnership um lends itself to this consensus mindset that I think leads to a lot of slow moving, um, slow moving changes when right now fast moving, you know, moving quickly and adapting to rapidly changing technologies is the name of the game for a lot of companies. And so I'm really ex- just excited about the idea of being able to compete within this, this market where I've seen it from the inside. I've seen it sort of firsthand, just how inefficient the billable hour model like just how that leads to such wonky incentives and so to me it's like 
there is a window of opportunity or will be a window of opportunity for smaller firms, um, solo shops and small smaller practices that can adapt quickly to undercut the pricing of big firms and try to take off, you know, at least the price sensitive clients like pick at, you know, those those areas where um where clients would go to an alternative if you know they're they're provided with the right value pr proposition. I think that big firms will always exist in terms of like a luxury brand. Um but I don't think that their business model is set up to compete in this this uh technological era. Interesting. And you know, get into the techno technological era a little bit. Are you planning on using AI to help you with your with your work in the subscription model? Is that is the is the tech there yet or do you hope it will be and uh get, get into that? Yeah, I I think there'll be more that I'll be able to talk about in future weeks. But right now what I can say is yes, definitely intending to use technology on the law firm side to lower our costs and make us more efficient. I think um, in terms of whether the tech is there yet, I think the answer is not really, like not without like very, very close supervision. And that kind of defeats some of the purpose of, of uh, being able to automate things. But that doesn't mean that it won't be there relatively soon. And I think the um, one line that we've seen a lot of is that the AI tool that you use today will be the worst AI tool that you ever use, um, which I think is very true that we're going to see an explosion of, um, of legal focused generative AI tools that are going to impress people. I think um, I'm going to the legal week conference this week in New York and hope to sample some of the different, uh, different tech that is, that is now coming onto the market. But I, I do think that sooner than people realize it will be very, very effective at eliminating a lot of the, the time involved in, uh, in executing legal tasks. And do you feel like that, time saved from the eventual, you know, addition of the, the legal AI tools? Do you, do you feel like that'll lead or lend itself towards your subscription model as opposed to the uh, billable hour? That's the theory. I mean, the, the theory is that the billable hour doesn't really create much incentive for adoption. Like I think it, it delays, it will delay adoption in uh, traditional billable hour firms. And the you know offering a subscription model or flat fee model allows for the firm to capture those efficiency gains mm -hmm. and pass those efficiency gains on to the client in the form of lower prices and i think that's bet it's better for everyone involved um at least that's the that's the theory interesting and uh another question on the starting out is uh, you know starting a new law firm how do you go about building your, your book of business and making relationships. You've only, you know, been in privacy now, maybe a couple of years. So get into, I guess, how you've uh, been able to make some of those relationships. I, I love conferences. Like I just, I like going to in-person events and meeting people and, you know, sitting down, talking to people face to face, um, introducing myself, talking about my story, talking about, 
my vision and just keeping keeping folks up to date about you know what what it is that we're uh, what, what we're building, what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and I think that it, it does, you know, it, it makes some in, intuitive sense to people when I, when I talk about it. And I know that the, you know, the privacy community is relatively small, tight knit and, um, uh, and also relatively new, like compared to many other sort of industry associations but i've also found that it's a very welcoming community because i think there's a recognition that we need more like professionals to be interested in this space we need you know it, there's there's not really like a protectionist kind of vibe at least that i get from from these events um and i just love that like i, I love that the privacy community is just so um so friendly and welcoming and you know i love to i love to meet people in this space yeah totally agree and uh get into what you see for the future i know we've talked a lot about that but uh you know what do you see how do you see uh your firm moving forward and what are you excited about uh uh in in, in the future there yeah um i think <sighs> I think I am most excited to see what we can do with the tech. Like the possibility of being able to build bespoke tools for subscription-based like niche practice services and then possibly one day license those out to other attorneys. That's really my long-term vision. And so the firm is kind of like a, a laboratory to play around with, with different possible solutions and then figure out what is the, the winning sort of strategy that delivers value for the client at the lowest possible price. And then take that model and try to evangelize it to other attorneys to shift the industry in a, in a direction that is i think more um more conducive to technological changes that are going to drive efficiencies um that's really the, the long-term vision well yeah that's a uh, quite a vision and then get into uh my last question for you is just looking back at your career what are either some moments or maybe some general trends that uh, you just feel that you're most proud about uh, throughout your career? Uh, most proud was probably when I won my first case, like that went to trial um, and the client called me rather than the partner and was like, Sean, we did it. <laughs> and you know what you're like, it was like a $60 million um, uh post-closing like it was a commercial uh litigation where this guy had sold had built this business out of nothing sold it to a, a company and gotten screwed basically on the, on the other side of it um but he took his winnings and set up a fund for uh refugee college kids who couldn't afford their tuition to stay in the u.s he created a fund to to provide them with tuition assistance um with that money and so that to me is like the 
one example, or one of the few examples of like big law work that I was actually really proud of. I think some of the other work is not that. <laughs> um, and that's one of the tough things about working at a big firm is that you you have to take sort of the, the, the good and the bad. You have to be kind of agnostic about the types of clients that you're serving, kind of agnostic about the, the types of work you're doing. And what I love about having my own practice, running my own firm is that I get to choose my client. I get to choose to work with people that I actually really believe in their mission. And I know that they really believe in their mission and not, um, not just work for money. Well said. Wow. And uh, with that, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'll read the, read the rhyme and then we'll sign off. So today I chatted with Sean about where his privacy career has gone. Once Sean's interests in privacy were confirmed, he decided to go out and start his own firm. And uh, with that, Sean, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Noah.